Good evening. This is Divorce and Family Law, the talk radio show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions? We've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and more. Good evening. It is January the 4th, 2017. This is our first show for the new year. I'm on, and my name is Vincent Davis. I'm an attorney here in Southern California, and I'm on with one of my associates, Daniel Nelton. He is an expert in family law matters here in California. Good evening, Dan. How are you? Just fine, Vince. How are you tonight? I'm doing good. You know, Dan, over the past few weeks or months, we've been talking a little bit about the Brad and Angelina uh, divorce. And I wanted to um, read to you something that appeared today in uh, People magazine. And uh, the title of the article was Angelina Jolie rips Brad Pitt in a new filing. He's, quote, terrified the public will learn the truth, unquote. And this uh, article was written today and published today by People Magazine by the author was Jody, J-O-D-I, and I'll spell the last name because I'm not sure how to pronounce it, G-U-G-L-I-E-L-M-I. And uh, she wrote this short article, Angelina Jolie has agreed to Brad Pitt's request to have divorce documents pertaining to custody sealed, but she slams him in her new court filing. Pitt, 53, asked a Los Angeles Superior Court judge to seal all records relating to their six children on December 21st, accusing Jolie of compromising the kids' privacy by releasing details to the media through public court filings. While Jolie, 51, has agreed to keep documents sealed, she strongly disputes his claims that freely publicized sensitive information, saying that he only made such accusations because he's, quote, terrified that the public will learn the truth, unquote. There is little doubt that Brad would prefer to keep entire ca- the entire case private, particularly given the detailed investigations by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Children and Family Services into allegations of abuse, state the court documents. But a source close to the situation stresses that Pitt has been cleared of all investigations. It is nice to see that she has finally come around to supporting the sealing of documents weeks after he reported he, weeks after he requested this action, the source tells People magazine, quote, considering that both the FBI and child services thoroughly investigated this matter and cleared the father, this line of attack doesn't make much sense, unquote. But a second source close to the situation is firing back, saying that while Pitt may have been cleared in the investigations following allegations, he was abusive towards Maddox on the family's private plane on September 14th. His actions had a lasting effect on the children. Quote, they keep pointing to him being cleared while his behavior didn't amount to anything criminal. 
That doesn't mean he didn't do anything wrong, unquote, says the source. The kids are traumatized. The mom has been protecting the kids by not revealing what really happened on the plane. Her interest since the outset hasn't changed to protect the health and safety of the kids. But the first source reports the most likely scenario is that she shared whatever information she has and the authorities clearly didn't find it to be credible or substantiated, says the first source. But if for some reason she inexplicably didn't share it, then one needs to question that was in the best interest of the children. The first source maintains that the request to seal documents has always made to help protect the children. So, Dan, and it continues. Yes. Tell us about sealing court records in a divorce case. Well, there's a great reluctance of the court um, these days to seal records in a divorce case. And my guess is the only reason that they're able to do it here is because they have a stipulation of the parties and um, also because it involves the minor children. Uh, if it weren't the children, if it were just property, we have seen cases uh, such as Burkle, I believe is the case, where um, a sealing of records has been denied because the public interest um, has been uh, held to be paramount. Um, that is that civil cases are normally open to the public. So the courts have been reluctant to seal. It, it is interesting to me, um, this kind of a situation, that if what is what you've stated is true from the reported source, um, it's interesting that Ms. Jo, uh, Jolie would have an, an urge to want to uh, publicize some of it, but not all. She would agree to sealing, but... Um, in a confidentiality uh, agreement or a confidential situation, not parties are, are not equally innocent, and the party who is more innocent uh, is probably uh, has, a, has an incentive to want to get some information out when they're celebrities, when they have a public image to protect. Um, and I suspect that's what's going on here: is uh, the parties, their position varies from day to day, and. Um, the, the more innocent party does want to get that information out, despite the urge to want to keep it confidential. If, um, let's say, two non-celebrities were getting divorced and they had a stipulation to keep their divorce sealed, do you think that they would have a chance to do that? Or is that something usually uh, limited to celebrities? Well, I haven't seen that happen. Uh, what I would suggest, though, is in that kind of a situation where there is a strong desire to keep it uh, confidential, that the parties use private mediation or private judging uh, where the, the matters are not uh, so um, readily available to the public. I do suspect, though, that if they actually do agree, if the parties do agree to having the matter sealed, I think the court would oblige that. It's just that if one party doesn't, I think the court would deny it generally, unless there's an overwhelming interest of the kids, you know, the confidentiality of the kids. Very good, very good. Um, you know, I was involved in a case one time. It was a divorce. They weren't celebrities, but they were very, what I would call well-known in a certain business community. And... Uh, both sides stipulated to uh, seal the records 
and the judge uh, denied that request. My client well, and I really didn't care either way, but so we didn't really cry about it. But what do you think about that? Uh, that's a very close close question, and that's um, why I, I think the court could easily go either way on that. Um, there, in the, in the Burkle case, there was a strong um, request to seal the records, and it was denied because the court just felt that the public did have a right to to see what was going on in the case. Um, if the parties agree to it, though, um, the judge usually goes along with a stipulation, you know, where the parties both agree to it. So mm-hmm. it is possible that they could do it. You know, tonight we were going to talk about child custody and visitation. But before we do that, I want to continue last week's uh, show and conversation about the division of assets and debts. We got to talk, we got to talk a lot about the division of assets, but we didn't talk at all about the division of debts. So Dan, tell us how are community debts determined and how are they usually divided? Well, the most simple answer is that if they're a community, they're divided 50-50 between the parties. Um, if the um, there's one exception to that, and uh, I think the cutoff figure is uh, $25,000. If there's less than $25,000 involved in the um, uh, property involved in the marriage, I think the court can divide them other than 50-50, and more on an equitable basis. But in general, they're divided 50-50. There are some situations where a, a debt that is while it's created during the marriage, uh, may not be held to be a 50-50 debt, such as, um, oh, say a, um, we'll say a husband in this case, say a husband commits a tort, a tort is a civil wrong, uh, say that he injures somebody intentionally, you know, from a fight or um, uh, some uh, violent situation, and as a result of that, he has a judgment against him personally for doing that assault or that battery. In that kind of a situation, the court could hold that that's his separate property because it doesn't have any advantage to the community. The community gains no benefit from it. And there has been authority to hold that. Um, Of course, the general rule is any debt that is incurred during the, uh, after the date of marriage and before separation will be community and be divided 50-50 with the exception of what I've just indicated. So in those uh, unusual circumstances where the wrongful act of one of the spouses doesn't benefit the community, then it can be assessed as the sole property of that um, guilty spouse. Um, There have been some other um, situations, too, um, that that come up uh, frequently. Um, where uh, the spouse has, um, let me see how this goes, where the spouses have divided their debts in a marital settlement agreement, sometimes the creditor can be held to just go after the one spouse uh, who has assigned that debt in the marital settlement agreement. Uh, There was a, a fairly recent case about that situation where the creditor wanted to go after both spouses 
of the spouse who incurred the debt and the spouse who had not incurred the debt. And um, the spouse the spouse has entered into a marital settlement agreement assigning it to the spouse who incurred the debt. And the creditor was was not allowed to go after the spouse who had not incurred it, despite the fact that the day before the marital settlement agreement was executed, it would have been a community property debt. The, the uh, creditor could have gone against both spouses equally, or they could have gone against either spouse for as much as they could get to satisfy that debt. So that's a little bit of a, a twist. <clears throat> you know, I was involved in a case once, uh, Dan, where there was about $60,000 uh, in debt on a particular uh, credit card that was used by the husband. And um, it turns out that the husband was using this card exclusively for the maintenance of another girlfriend. And had we not looked at the credit card statement and inquired about what these charges were and cash advances were, um, we would have never realized that he, the husband was incurring debt for several years in the marriage and paying it off with community funds, um, you know, for the support of another woman outside of the marriage. Uh, then what do you think happened with that debt and those payments that he made? Well, um, this falls not so much under the law of debt as it falls under breach of fiduciary, in my view. Um, the husband could be liable for breach of fiduciary because in a situation where uh, a um, wrongful act has occurred, if it has been an either illegal or if it has been gross negligent, uh, grossly negligent, then the the spouse who incurred that debt could be uh, assigned that debt by as a uh, matter of the breach of fiduciary obligation between him and the spouse or a breach of management and control um so um it's not quite clear that it's gross negligence and it's i mean if he were for example doing uh, incurred a bunch of debt because of uh, buying cocaine ingesting cocaine, that's illegal, and it's a lot clearer of a case. But in, in this case, it's not illegal, and it's not gross negligence as such. So it's quite possible that um, it, uh, it it could be, uh, I, I hesitate to say it could be allowed to be community property, but it, it could be. In this particular case, and there's more facts, you know, surrounding this particular debt and the payments, uh, the court held that it was not community debt, and the uh, spouse could recover one half of all the payments that this uh, husband was making to support um, the other woman, you know, over a few years. And that, that is probably because the husband is diverting community money uh, toward that support, and uh, the court is looking at it as, as a... Uh, as misappropriation of, of community funds. And, uh, I can yes, I'd have one. to agree with you. Okay, so tonight we have some questions from listeners with respect to custody, visitation, and child support. 
So Dan, tell us what is, what are the different types of custody in California? Well, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, there's physical custody, legal custody, um, joint custody, and uh, some other variations upon those themes, um, which are more um, loosely worded. Those those three uh, terms are statutory terms. They actually occur in the Family Law Code, so that's why they're they're recognized. Uh, physical custody is the uh, the thing that everyone fights about in their custody battles. Physical custody is determining the power to determine where the child lives. And um, naturally, uh, if the parent wants the child with them, then that's, that's the issue they'll be fighting over predominantly. Now, legal custody is the uh, power to make decisions concerning health, education, and welfare of the child. And uh, in so many of our cases, we see that as uh, held to be a joint uh, custody award. And that's because, in general, the court likes to see the parents share on the decisions that pertain to the ch uh, children with regard to health, education, and welfare. But that can be, any of those uh, powers can be ruled on specifically by the court in legal custody. If one parent for example, wants to have the power to determine um, a specific type of, of issue, and the court agrees uh, with that uh, issue and that that parent might have the best ability to deal with that, uh, the court could assign the, the decision-making power to that parent. Uh, for example, say a parent has been very active with uh, Little League, and um, there's been a dispute between mom and dad over of whether the child's going to do Little League or some other kind of activity. And uh, the court has heard the testimony and feels that the Little League involvement was good for the child, and the dad has the uh, most experience with that and would be most capable of making the determination about how that uh, involvement should, should be. It, the court could assign that to the dad in that situation. So and that's, there are variants of that in, across the spectrum of decisions, naturally. Now, a third type of custody, and one that uh, was in uh, great fashion some time ago, it's a little less in fashion now, but it still is, we see it a, a lot, and that is joint custody. Joint custody is uh, where, uh, joint physical custody is where the, uh, the parents are sharing an appreciable period of time with the child, uh, rather than, uh, say, a standard 80%, 20%, uh, guideline. An 80%, 20% uh, is typically uh, something like um, every other weekend, plus some time in the summer, plus some time at the holidays, shared holidays, plus maybe every Wednesday evening after school until dinner time. That's much more like a 20% uh, time-sharing arrangement, and the other parent would have 80% of the time uh, typically with that. Now, if you start increasing those times much, then it starts uh, going more into a joint physical custody arrangement. I personally think that up around 33% of the time, once we're up around there, then uh, we're getting into a joint custody um, area. 
And of course, a 50-50 arrangement is very popular with people. Do you usually see those? Well, I have been type of seeing arrangements it a lot. Under 50. I, I have been seeing it a lot in situations uh, where the parents are both very capable, where they're living close to each other. That makes it that gives you the physical possibility of making it a good arrangement, especially if they're living in the same school district and they can um, transport the children very readily. And uh, in some cases where the parents are really trying to make a good compromise and trying to really share time with the children, a 50-50 or close arrangement can be very, very successful for the kids and and, uh, and keep both parents um, involved and um, active, you know, with the arrangement. One other thing I, I haven't mentioned is sometimes in the courts uh, or the um, court recommendations, you'll see the, the phrase primary residence used. <clears throat> a, a custody evaluator may say, instead of saying physical custody to mom, it may say um, primary residence of the child will be with mom. That's in my way of thinking, that's just a um, euphemism. It's a kind way of of indicating that physical custody is being awarded to someone. And the courts have, in several cases, stated that it's not so important the words that are used. It's the actual physical time that is being ordered and being shared that determines whether it's uh, sole physical, joint physical, um, or what. So primary residence is, is really just a euphemism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> How does joint and sole legal slash physical custody work for a child? Well, um, I've, as I've indicated about legal custody, if there's a specific issue that one party is very concerned about and that is ordered, uh, that's one way that legal custody can be um, uh, allocated or carved out for one parent. But in general, uh, legal custody means that the parents should should consult each other about issues that are not relegated to one specific parent. Um, say that, that uh, you'd like the child to attend a, a certain school or a certain type of uh, school, maybe a private school or a uh, attend a certain religion, those kinds of things, uh, the parents should consult with each other before deciding. Or that you want to have a certain doctor um, be the child's physician or to have a certain type of operation that the child needs. The parents should consult each other before they decide. And that's generally how legal custody works and how it's designed to work. Now, physical custody, um, that's just basically where the child's going to be. Um, and I've seen arrangements, all sorts of arrangements about uh, um, physical custody being shared in different uh, percentages or different regimens, as, as we've discussed a moment ago about joint custody. Uh, for example, one popular method is the 2-2-3 two, two, uh, uh, division of 50-50 custody. You know, one parent may have, say, let's say a dad has the child at 8 o'clock on Monday morning until 8 o'clock on Wednesday morning, and then he takes the child to mom. And mom then has the child from 8 o'clock on Wednesday morning to 8 o'clock 
on Friday morning. And then at that time, the child goes back to dad. And then dad gets from Friday morning through Saturday, through Sunday, and then to Monday morning at 8 o'clock, and then it shifts again. <clears throat> so that that way, dad would have five days running. He'd have five days running, and then it um, goes to mom for two days, and then mom would have the alternating holiday, so she'd have five days running. And that's a nice way of, of making sure that the parents um, don't monopolize the weekend time. Uh, that way each parent is getting alternating weekends and the child is getting from time to time a five-day period of time with the parent. And the, another grace of the advantage of the 2 2 three situation is that for a younger child, being away from one parent may be excruciatingly long. Um, you know, say that uh, parents had decided to do an alternating week arrangement. That is a week on, week off. You know, dad has the child one week, then mom has the child the next week. That may not work for a child who's only two or three because a week is a very long period of time for a child of that age. And it may not work to, for, a, for a child of those tender years to be away from um, the parent for that long. They want to, to see each parent more frequently. Of course, a lot of variations can be tell me something. You know, Dan, I, you know, one of the questions I get a lot from clients, both men and women, is the question of in the custody and visitation arena, does it matter who files first? And the related question is, do judges favor mothers over fathers? What do you think about those two questions? Well, we could talk about those for a long time. On the first point, who files first? Um, in general, I don't think it matters who files, say, the divorce or the um, or the annulment or the legal separation first, um, except that if you're the petitioner, uh, you do have the right at the trial, if it, you're unlucky enough that it has to go to trial, the petitioner has the right to uh, open the argument and close the argument. And that can be very powerful for a trial lawyer, to have the right to open and close the concluding remarks. And uh, the petitioner has the right to open, to start off with the evidence, too. They're the first one who can put on the evidence. So those can be very powerful. But other than that, I personally don't think it matters so much. Now, there are a lot of tactics in which the, which uh, can be used that change that, however. Uh, for example, if, you, uh, if a party files first and goes in for a, um, an ex-party order uh, because the other parent uh, has left for a while or something like that, then who files first can be extremely important. Let's say the following hypothetical. Uh, Dad has custody because mom is taken off for a month um, and out of um, anger with dad or frustration with dad or what have you. But she's left for three weeks, a month, and dad uh, consults his lawyer and his lawyer says, well, this is a good time to go in on an emergency basis and get an order stating that mom has left she hasn't made any provisions for when she's coming back. She left the children with you, 
and the court in that kind of a circumstance might very well order that dad now has physical custody. That is, the court might just simply acknowledge in writing as an order what has occurred on the ground. You know, the facts are that mom has gone and given dad custody. So if dad steps in quickly and does that, then those first orders are very powerful. And then when mom changes her mind and re uh, regrets what she's done and comes back, um, then mom has got a, an uphill fight because dad now has custody and mom has to convince the court about why she should uh, be given custody back. So that can be very important. Um, <clears throat> I think that's probably the, the most uh, common situation where there really is a, a big significance about who files first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what one do you think about more, the... Mm -hmm. One thing more um, I might add is I think we all tend to think in court, in court proceedings, that the early decisions, the early motions that are made in the courts don't matter so much as the big spectacular trial that occurs um, you know, when we put on oral testimony and, and uh, have the witnesses there and spend a day or two um, hearing from them and all that and all the arguments. But in custody, I think personally it's the other way around. I think the earliest um, rulings are sometimes by far the most important because in my view, my experience, they set the momentum for the court, um, for the court's energy, uh, the court's uh, uh, direction on a custody case. And now you can just picture it's human nature when a judge says early on, in the very first order, uh, some indication about, well, I think I'm going to let Johnny stay with mom. When the judge says that, and you go back to that same judge a month later or six months later, and say, well. Judge, uh, I think maybe you, maybe it should be dad. Maybe you made a little mistake on that. You know, you didn't think about this, that, and the other. The judge does have a tendency to want to stay with his earlier insight into the case, his or her earlier rulings. So it it does get hard to change that momentum. So you have to respect in custody the earliest decisions. Mm-hmm. And what about the preference for mothers over fathers? Um, um, our law is very clear that there is no gender preference per se. California law is very clear about that. However, uh, it's easy to say that. It's easy to read that in the law. But we've had a long period of time where there, I think, has been a preference toward mothers in uh, children of tender years. And in fact, I think we had a Supreme Court case uh, back some long time ago recognizing a, or giving a, um, a um, priority toward mothers when the child is of tender years. That uh, decision has long been abandoned by the Supreme Court, however in California. So the tender years doctrine is now gone. There is, um, in cases where the child has been nursing, I think there's a strong tendency to favor mothers with a nursing child for the obvious biological reasons. Um, and 
<clears throat> so we still see it there, I think. And there still are a lot of um, biases that we all have about that. Um, and uh, I think it's just smart for us to recognize the biases we have and uh, try to deal with them. Uh, and that's how the judges are trained about it, too. They have biases, too. But if they can at least recognize them and try to deal with them and try to be equal. So uh, I've had great success with uh, winning custody for dads, and I've had success in winning custody for moms. Um, I, I do still think that we do have some unconscious biases in different situations. And um, I've mentioned one, you know, early, very young children, uh, especially in nursing situations. Okay, so when we're going to court, there's a mother, there's a father, and they're battling for custody and visitation. What does the judge look at to uh, make a determination? Well, the judge looks at everything. The judge has um, the primary obligation to um, determine the best interest of the child. That's the legal requirement. Now, what the best interest of the child is, is is largely in the discretion of the court. The court looks at, however, some of the most common things, some of the biggest factors, I think, are the attachment of the child to that specific parent. Sometimes uh, that is called bonding loosely. I think the, the psychological word is attachment, but um, it's what we've referred to as bonding. And uh, some children are closer to some parents than others, and the court wants to recognize that. Uh, the court recognizes that all the time by the concept of the primary parent. Who was the parent who's been primarily responsible for dealing with the child? Um, for younger children, you know, we're looking at who is the parent that that uh, did the cooking, did the bathing of the child, um, did the dressing for the child, changed the diapers. You know, we commonly come across those arguments uh, because it, um, that shows that that's the parent who the child is most familiar with or has spent most time with. Uh, a question I often ask is who does the child go to when the child is having problems? What what uh, parent does the child run to? Um, that gives you an idea sometimes of, uh, of where the child is oriented, toward which parent is the child oriented. Uh, legally, the stability of the child is a huge factor. The courts recognize stability is good for children, that uh, the more stable they are in the environment, the more they can work on uh, their maturity and their growth and their educations, their friendships, their social relationships. Um, the psychologists oftentimes will be doing testing for various psychological factors of the children, and what they're looking for is what parent matches best with that child. What um, can that parent offer to meet the psychological and physical needs of that specific child. So that, I think, is a large part of the uh, of what the psychological uh, testing comes down to, really, is a matching uh, attempt. Now, we have children of all sorts of different needs, and if a child has physical uh, needs, say a child is autistic and one parent has been 
much more involved with um, ministering to the child's autism, um, then that parent naturally would be a better fit, uh, all things being equal, that would be a better fit for that child. Um, say one, chi- uh, one parent is able to be around the child more than the other parent because of um, work or what have you, that's a factor to consider too. Now the court cannot per se um, use the fact that one parent is working against that parent. Um, having to work for economic reasons is not a uh, per se a factor to hold against a parent. So just because one works doesn't mean that he, lo- he or she loses custody. Uh, is, again, the court has to go into the, the needs. And then different children at different ages. I've seen, I think any parent would recognize that different ages um, bring out different needs for the child toward one parent or the other. Um, the stability of the child's schooling is is paramount. If the child has been at a, a specific school, the court is not likely to want to pull that child out of that school because continuing with the same peers in the school is uh, is very helpful to the child. And also the, the stability and the comfort of the child in that setting. Um, we've seen some cases the Williams case and the Heath case, for example, where um, the court is uh, reluctant, and in fact there's a presumption that it's not in the best interest of the child to separate the child from his or her siblings. So the court uh, presumes that it's best to keep the, the children, the brothers and sisters, together. Now, if there are compelling reasons for them not to be uh, then they can be separated. But those cases do show that there should be a presumption to keep them together. Um, and a case where maybe they're not uh, kept together might be, say, a, a, um, a seven-year-old child whose, whose brother is uh, 16 and involved in the high school football team and all that. The seven-year-old child is in a different world than the 16-year-old. So there, there's not such a close nexus between the the children as there might be between a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. So those are factors. Now, one I haven't mentioned yet, uh, domestic violence. If domestic violence has happened between the parents, the innocent parent is presumed by law to be the more fit parent for custody purposes. That's called Family Code Section 3044. That's just a presumption. So that means if all things are equal, and this is an innocent parent in a domestic violence situation, the innocent parent is going to get a preference for the custody decision. But that is a rebuttable presumption, so um, the court will hear countervailing evidence showing why that that presumption shouldn't occur. Um, I could go into other factors. You know, we'd be, we'd be talking about uh, um, values of the parents, reliability of the parents, the habits of the parents, the patience of the parents. All those things um, should be considered. There was a famous case called Carney, decided by the Supreme Court of California a long time ago, where a judge made the mistake of, of saying to a disabled father in a wheelchair, that he uh, wouldn't be a good father because he was disabled in a wheelchair. How could he um, 
minister to the sports needs of the the child, etc. And the court has held that the fact that a parent is disabled is not per se a factor uh, against that parent in custody. Now, how that disability might apply in a specific um, situation at any given time, that's a different matter. The court can consider that. Or um, uh, whether a parent is gay, that is itself not to be considered as a factor in custody. Whether a parent's an immigrant, an illegal immigrant, is itself, unless there's a, a danger of uh, abduction, it is not to be considered a factor per se for determining custody. These are things that people may or may not be aware of. Tell me um, what the term 730 evaluation is and how it's used in custody and visitation uh, disputes in family law court. Uh, 730 is the code section in the evidence code um, regarding the appointment of the court's expert. So the court can appoint an expert evaluator that is, is uh, essentially the court's expert to make a recommendation to the judge about how the court should rule in a given custody situation. So the parents, uh, the judge could order or the parents could agree that a 730 evaluator be selected, and that would be a psychologist typically. And uh, that um, psychologist would uh, be bound to do certain psychological testing with the children. Now, I, I should say as a preliminary matter, the judge is required uh, to set forth what the psychologist should be looking at, the, the limits of what the issue is that the court wants the psychologist to be looking at. For example, are we talking about the court, uh, about uh, the psychologist making a recommendation of a move away or not? But once the court sets the parameters for what it's looking for, the psychologist to decide, then the psychologist does testing, and the psychologist would be reading uh, the papers that the parties submit to the psychologist. Typically, they would be interviewing the child. They would be interviewing the parents. Um, we often see the um, psychologist interviewing the child with one parent and then later the child with the other parent, seeing how they react. Um, in some situations, the psychologist might actually make a home visit. That's not so often, but it does happen. And after all that, the psychologist uh, makes a recommendation to the court in an uh, increasingly lengthy report these days. And uh, the court is not required to follow that recommendation, but the court does uh, strongly favor them, naturally, if it's a well-reasoned report. And that's a 730 evaluation. Are they easy to get? How, do, how does one ask for a 730? Well, um, you would, first of all, you would make an, a proposal to the other side informally if that's what you wanted, because it may be that you can save money and not go to court. You know, you might be able to just have a stipulation, you know, a paper drafted up by the lawyers um, appointing a certain person as a, an evaluator and then have the judge sign it. No problem. But more typically, uh, what you would be doing is going to the court, filing a request for order for a 730 evaluator to be appointed, and then the court uh, would make that recommendation, or would, well, sorry, would make uh, a ruling based on 
on the evidence before the court. Um, sometimes this will occur uh, through a mediation session. Um, mediation is family court services, typically. Um, and uh, there is a rule that before any custody or visitation issue is heard by the court, the parties are supposed to have an opportunity to go to a family court services mediation. And uh, in some counties that's confidential, in some counties it's reporting, uh, where the mediator makes a recommendation to the judge. In Los Angeles it's confidential, and the, they don't make recommendations. In other counties they may make reporting uh, where, the, where there is a, a report to the judge. And if that mediator in a reporting county recommends a 730 evaluation, assuming the parties can afford it, then the judge might order it. And in some counties, um, there is no county money to pay for 730s, so the parties have to have the funds themselves to pay for it. Uh, in some counties, there may be funds uh, for the public to pay for those 730 uh, evaluations. And then the parties uh, get it you know, at the county's expense. Um, and they can be quite expensive. They, uh, I've, I've heard of them as cheap as uh, $5,000, if you can call that cheap, and, and I've heard of them up to $50,000. It just depends on the expertise of the per particular uh, psychologist. You know, some have great reputations for this area of law. $50,000, that that's uh, quite expensive. It would be very expensive, yes, and it could go beyond that too. You know, if uh, if there was an uh, if the other side didn't like the report and decided to hire an evaluator to criticize the report, uh, that could be done too. And then you have two psychologists, you know, that are testifying in court, so it it can get extremely expensive. I have seen cases where. Extremely. Uh, I have seen cases where it can be economical. Uh, there are some psychologists who um, will have uh, very limited testing, and they might just meet with the parents for a shorter period of time and make recommendations, and uh, that can be a lot cheaper. You know, Dan, um, we have a few calls on, on hold. I'm, I might, let's take a call this evening from area code 562 Ending in eight seven. Good evening. Um, You're on with hello? Attorney Vincent Davis. Good evening. Hi. Good evening. Um, Hi. I have a question. Um, I so how likely is it? Um, I'm a single mother. I have a five year old, and um, the father has been paying child support for um, since three years ago. But at the same time. It's been three years since uh, since he's been physically um, since he's been in in my child's life. So I decided to file for full custody, legal and physical. But um, now that I that I filed, he decides he also wants to be a part of of my daughter's life. And um, I hired an attorney, but that attorney is telling me that it is not likely that I can I can get full physical. Um, or legal custody, and they want um, the father wants to start overnight visits um, in March this year already. Um, 
is that is that likely? Is it the, the would the court grant overnight visits for someone who hasn't been a part of my child's life in three and a half years? Vince, shall I uh, jump in on that one? Please, please. Um, of course, from the judge's point of view, there are so many uh, dads or so many moms who have faded out of their children's lives that sometimes the judge uh, wants to avoid creating another situation where the, the father is permanently out of the child's life. So the, the court is um, might be sensitive to when the dad comes rushing in, now that you've asked for full custody, he comes rushing in and saying, I've repented, now I want to be involved. So the judge might be open to the possibility that he can make he can become a good dad again. So I do understand why the judge would want to allow the dad to come back and not say have 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 no visitation whatsoever. However, what I see is the court is um, usually tending toward gradualism in that situation. Dad's been out of the child's life, um, and so if if we're going to have overnight, maybe we'll work up to that. You know, we might have some supervised visitation at first just to make th uh, sure the child is comfortable with this and that, that uh, dad is not a total stranger to the child after three years. So uh, supervised visitation may be informal or maybe formal supervised visitation, and if that works out, then maybe we can move into something unsupervised for a few hours with dad. And then after that uh, goes along for a few months, if there's no bad uh, result, no contraindication, then maybe you start considering overnight. So a gradual movement toward it uh, could be the way to go. Now, I, we don't know your specific case. I'm not um, uh, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking over your attorney's opinion because he knows the facts specifically. But I'm, I'm sure he or she is looking at that gradualism idea. And uh, and we'll see if the dad ever gets to the point where he can do overnight. It may well be that uh, he'll cancel out before that time. How old is the child? She's five years old. Um, and, and I do have another 12-year-old. Um, I have my 12-year-old, my and I, I heard you mention something about um, if, if they're siblings in the family, my daughters are really close, and they um, their request was that every Saturday that he'd be allowed every Saturday to see her every Saturday and start overnights in March, um, and they wanted to do overnights every Saturday in March and April as a temporary um, schedule, but I was opposed to every Saturday because I do have my other child with me every other Saturday, and I don't want them to be separated during that time. Right. Um, but I, I just thought that March was too soon for, for my five-year-old to, to be spending overnight at, at the other, well, at her father's home. Three-fifths of her life, she hasn't had the dad around. It is a bit of a shock to her to now uh, have him come back into her life. She probably doesn't have memories at, at uh, age one and two. She probably doesn't have memories of him that young. So it, it should be gradual. And I think most courts would go okay. that way. Okay. If there's a and temporary... At least I... 
I'm sorry, go ahead. No, there's a temporary what? If there's a temporary schedule, that's what they're saying from from now to the end of April where we where we're gonna visit it at court. Um the temporary schedule has overnight. Um but so there there's nothing I can do about that. Or if I notice that maybe at the end of February I see that that the child will not be comfortable, can I raise a concern? Uh, in because, general, yes. Um, no, okay. whether you can afford to to do that is a is a big issue. But yeah, if there are contraindications, you know, if the child is um, um, having problems sleeping, um, you see anxiety, um, very reluctant to go to the dad, um, uh, things like that. You know, you might want to point that out, and you could you could make a motion to the court about that, even on an emergency basis, if it were serious enough. Okay. And also, okay. of course, the safety that dad is exhibiting. You know, it might be that dad, ha having no experience with raising kids, maybe he's doing unsafe things, in which case you need to point that out to the court, too. You know, like not providing a child seat or drinking while he's with the child or um, any of those kinds of things. I mean, there was domestic violence when we lived together, but I brought that up and they said that because I didn't press charges, I really couldn't do anything about it. Well, I can't second guess the judge. Maybe they thought that it was too far back and it was too mild. But uh, it, there is a, the 3044 presumption um, if okay. actual domestic violence has occurred. Okay. I will look into that. Are you familiar with Thank you very much. I'm not. I'm not familiar with it. Yes, ma'am. I'm here. So what, here. when you get off the when you get off the phone, I want you to Google Family Code thirty forty four. Okay. And once you California Google it, I want you to read it. I want you to read it and then discuss it with your attorney as soon as possible. Okay, I will. All right. Thank you for calling in, Thank and please listen in next week as well. Thank you very much. Dan, there's a couple more calls I think I better take. Uh, okay. Area code 909, ending, ending in 8-3. Hi. Hi. Hello. Good evening. Hi, How are you? Can you hear me? Good evening. I'm good. Yes. How are you? I, I have a, a question. It's, it's pretty complex, but um, I'm a mother of two autistic children. They're grade school. And I currently share 50-50 custody with the father. Um, and it hasn't been modified since before they started school. So it's one week on, one week off. Now, um, the school district that they're attending is in his parents' school district. He actually resides in another city. But yet they're attending for the grandparents' convenience. Now, my my issue is, the fact that they're week on, week off, I, I see there's issues with their behaviors from, it varies from house to house, and they're autistic, so they don't do well with transition. Um, I'm, I'm the one responsible for making sure they get their special services, and again, getting them back and forth to school on my week, and I wanted to get this modified um, where 
they spend more time with me because I'm I'm the parent that's mostly involved. Now, the issue standing right now is that their school district that they're in now has moved them to three different schools in the past two years, and I'm not comfortable with that. I feel it's a stability issue, and I like to opt for them to attend school in my school district and they spend more time with me. Um, so after winter recess, actually next week, the school district is opting to change their schools again. So I asked my attorney, could we possibly file an ex parte to keep this from happening? Because I don't agree with the move, but the school district is acting on it anyways, despite the court order. And I talked to my attorney about it. She said there's no means for an ex parte. The court won't consider it as an emergency, but we can't file a motion. So I want to know what is it that could be done to keep this from happening, if anything at all. Shall I respond, Vince? Please. The uh, I think what your attorney is saying is there's a tendency for the courts the last few years particularly to only uh, be wanting to deal with true emergencies, real emergencies. However, what a real emergency is is different from person to person. And I think changing a child's school, especially for an autistic child, is an emergency. So I think there mm -hmm. is a chance, there is a chance that a court might consider that to be an emergency. And, of mm -hmm. course, the worst that can happen is the court will say no, and you've wasted $1,000 or $1,500 of attorney's time and effort uh, to bring the ex-party proceeding. And then the court mm -hmm. would simply put it on the regular calendar and you'd be heard in five weeks or six weeks. I, I would file, well, you have to go with your attorney's advice because he or she you know, knows the facts a lot better than we do. But uh, I, I would not rule out an, uh, an ex-party, and then certainly you would want to do uh, the uh, regular RFO to ch to stop the uh, the rotating of schools like this. That's the one of the worst things I think in a custody case is to be changing schools frequently. And another point is, you know, the school district may be under I'm misapprehension. Sorry. They may think that the child lives there. What is an RFO? RFO is request for order. It's just a fancy name for a motion in a divorce mm -hmm. case or a paternity case. RFO is just mm -hmm. making a motion to the court. Now, you've asked for an ex parte. That's something that could be done right away. An RFO is mm -hmm. something that is set about five or six weeks out, um, mm -hmm. the request for order. And that's probably what you would need to do. Okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You said in regards to the school district. I'm oh, sorry, yeah, about the school, district. the school district. See, the school district may not know that the child, that the dad is living elsewhere. You know, the child, if is in the the, uh, the grandparent school district, the child may not actually qualify to be in that school district. So, and maybe the school doesn't know that. That's an interesting interesting question. I'm not sure what you would want to do. That depends on the facts. Ma'am, I, I would like to thank you for calling in. Submitting my address. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, uh, well, I appreciate your calling in. I think we're getting pretty short on time here, though. Okay. So. Thank you very do much. Do me a favor and call next. Call next week and listen next week. We have to sign off now. We've got two seconds. Good night, everyone. Talk. See you next week on the radio. Good night.